Okay, if you open up to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verse 15. And uh, we'll probably need a lot of extra help today at the potluck because Kai's not here. and She does like the work of like six or seven people. So, yeah. And if everybody could uh, stay up here after the service, then like last time, we'll sing with you to come down. Okay. Okay, so after the service, just hang out up here, fellowship, and then they'll let us know when it's when it's okay to go down, so that we don't uh, interrupt them with the with their setup and all. And um, so, open up to Genesis three fifteen, and we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we thank you, Lord, for everyone who's here. We we also thank you, Lord, for the ones who couldn't make it, and we just pray that you bless them where they're at. And uh, we just love you, Lord. And um, we've had so many people go to be with the Lord the last three years, so just bring us together, unite us as a family. And as difficult times are ahead for Christians, just help us to, uh, to be all that you called us to be and uh, to be faithful to you. And as we celebrate this uh, Christmas season, I just pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would remind us that this is a promise that was fulfilled. And, uh, and I pray, Lord, that we are forever grateful that your son became a man and uh, provided salvation for us by dying on the cross for our sins. So I pray, Lord, that uh, in the midst of this Christmas season that you would anoint me with your spirit to proclaim your truth and that you'd open hearts and minds, including my own, to receive truth from your word. But that we would keep Christ as the, the center of this season. I pray, Lord, that you would empower us to apply the truths that we learned today to our lives. So we'd be pleasing in your sight through the power of the Holy Spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, so... Uh, I titled today's message, The, Christ, the Christmas Promise. The Christmas Promise. And um, what I've kind of noticed, I'm sure a lot of people have noticed, is that for 2,000 years we've been looking back. Okay, so we've been looking back to Christmas. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, another Christmas season is, is coming up. And, uh, and uh, so let's celebrate Christmas. And we often forget about Jesus and we just think about what gifts we're going to receive and things of that sort. But, uh, but we've been looking back for 2,000 years and we forget that since the beginning of time uh, until Jesus came, um, the true believers were looking forward to the day that he came. So I want to talk about um, the Christmas promise a promise that God made as far back as the Garden of Eden. A promise that God made to Abraham. A promise that God made to Moses and the prophets. Uh, a promise uh, that God eventually made uh, to Mary and to Joseph. And, um, and so I want us to, to key on that. It's a promise fulfilled uh, so many times when we look at promises throughout life. You know, people make promises all the time, and they don't always keep them. 
You know, how many times, uh, you know, somebody sets up a meeting with you and promises they're going to be there, and then they never show up. Okay, and and I've had that. Sometimes it's just a mistake um, with the Sherry's. I waited for like an hour and 20 minutes at the Sherry's in Bremerton, and I was supposed to be at the Sherry's in Silverdale. Um, but we got a God who doesn't make mistakes. Okay? And uh, he fulfills his promises. Not always in our timing, but in his timing. And uh, a lot of the people that are here are married. And when you take your wedding vows, you make promises to be faithful to those promises. And, and um, I remember making promises to my bride and her making promises to me. And through the decades, she's been faithful. And um, um, I just received a little package in the mail the other day, and that was based on a promise. You see, my, my Portuguese grandfather, my Italian grandparents obviously came from Italy, but my Portuguese grandfather and my Portuguese grandmother uh, came over from Portugal uh, to America. And he, he was born, Annabel Fernandez was born in 1890. And uh, he came over in 1917 and worked real hard, saved up some money, and then sent for his, his wife, Maria, and, uh, and their two daughters. And then they came over, and then a year later, my dad was the first Fernandez citizen, first one born in the United States in 1920. And, uh, but, you know, my grandpa Hannibal ended up raising 13 kids through the Depression, and he didn't speak any English, and neither did his wife, my grandmother. And, um, but the one precious thing that he had in the eyes of man was he had this watch with a little chain, and he would wear a suit, he probably had one suit, and he would wear that, I don't know how many times, maybe just special events, but you could see old, the, the, these photos are so black and white, they look brown and white, like the real old photos, and you could see the little chain, you couldn't see the watch, but you could see the little chain and his handlebar mustache, and, and I can't tell exactly when the photos were taken in Portugal, when they were taken in America, um, but it's, I think it's safe to say that he owned this watch maybe while he was still in Portugal, at the very least, while he was still a, a decently young man, and so probably maybe the 1920s he might have gotten it. But he passed it on. He wanted to pass it on when he died to my dad with the instructions that my dad would pass it on to me, the oldest, because I'm the oldest son of the oldest son, and my grandpa Hannibal was an oldest son. And... Um, um, but my dad was an electrician, and I guess back then if somebody gave you a watch, you wore it. And my dad was an electrician, so he was constantly on his back and crawling into spaces, and he thought, man, this valuable watch, I'm going to bust the thing. So I'll let my brother Tony hold on to it with instructions that when he dies, pass it on to Phil. And so my Uncle Tony died, World War II vet, um, Grew up during the Depression. He died uh, just, just this past year uh, at the age of 97. And so 
they got it cleaned. It doesn't work, but they got it cleaned and, and sent it to me. And um, that's a promise fulfilled. And it wasn't like I wasn't, I never brought it up. I mean, they just mentioned it in passing to me when I was a teenager. And um, it didn't even mean a lot to me back then, but now it means a lot to me. And now it's, it's going to be real important for when I pass that on. I figure I'm going to probably put a booklet together talking about who Hannibal Fernandez was, who Joe Fernandez, my dad, was, because that's a promise fulfilled. And so as we go into this Christmas season, let, let's remember, we're been, we've been looking back for 2,000 years, but for thousands of years, they were looking forward. God had made a promise. Did God fulfill that promise? Of course, he did, and that's what Christmas is, is all about. So let us never forget the history of the Christmas promise, the promise that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of mankind, would, would come. We often forget that Christmas is a promise kept. And uh, now, we all know the story in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, how in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And God had formed Adam from the dust of the ground and formed Eve from his side. And he breathed life uh, into their nostrils. And, um, and we're all human beings. We're all descendants of Adam. This is something, too, I'm telling you. Some of our leading defenders of the Christian faith are now starting to deny that and teaching that Adam and Eve evolved from apes. Okay? And um, that's why I'm a member of the International Society of Christian Apologetics, because when we say the Bible is without error, we not only believe it's without error, but we don't like to explain away historical facts that the Bible records and pretend that they're just mythology. Okay? But God created man, created him perfect. He and his wife created them perfect in the garden, told them not to eat of the forbidden fruit. They ate of the forbidden fruit. Uh, the serpent, Satan spoke to the serpent and led them astray. And so that was in chapter 3 is, is the fall of mankind. But at the fall of mankind, you know, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, but God said that's not good enough, and he probably killed, the Bible doesn't say, but he probably killed animals in their presence and covered them with animal skin. Okay? And the truth that comes out of that that we now know in um, uh, the book of Hebrews says without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. There had to be that blood sacrifice. Of course the blood sacrifice had to be ultimately worthy, had to be God. So God the Son had to become a man. But after Adam and Eve fell, God told them right there in the garden, Genesis 3 and verse 15. And I will put enmity. Enmity is a, is a word that I used to have a hard time pronouncing. Now I can pronounce it, so I kind of like to flaunt the fact that I can. But I can remember, I used to read, they tell me, hey, read Genesis 3.15. I'd say, and I will put hatred between you and the woman. Hatred is easier to pronounce. And, and uh, it's kind of like vulnerable and susceptible. If you can't pronounce one, you just use the other. And, uh, but I will put enmity between you and the woman. It's between the serpent 
between Satan and the woman, and between your, between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I agree with C.S. Lewis and many scholars who believe that this is the first preaching of the gospel. That God is promising that the Messiah will come. By the way, you could title the book, the whole Bible, you could title it Jesus. You could title the whole Bible, The Promised Seed. That God promised that this offspring would come. By the way, when our translations translate seed as offspring or descendants, we ought to just translate it seed. And um, Paul points out that in the passages of the Abrahamic covenant over and over again, God said that he was going to bless Abraham's, bless the world through Abraham's descendants. Paul said, no, the word there is seed, singular. And that seed is Jesus. God created us perfect, put us in this little paradise garden of Eden. We blew it, and then God made a promise. He promised that Jesus would come. Uh, hatred between Satan and the woman, between uh, her seed and his, and his seed. Um, the word seed... If you're really going to be literal about it, it's what the man produces to new life. Okay? Today, we, we would call it the, the sperm. It's what the man contributes to produce new life. So C.S. Lewis said that, you know, Genesis 3.15 is kind of hinting already at a virgin birth. Because everywhere else in the Bible where the word seed is mentioned, it's the seed of a man the seed of David, the seed of Abraham. Here is the seed of the woman. So, you can see that he's saying that, look, um, the seed, a man born of a woman, because it's a he, shall bruise your head. Bruising the head, that's a mortal blow, a mortal injury. That a man is going to be born of woman without the agency of a man, of another man, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise his heel. This is a prediction right there in the Garden of Eden when the entire human race was present. They were Adam and Eve. They were the entire human race. The entire human race comes from them. Don't listen to these scholars today trying to say that, you know, we got all this other kind of pre-Adamic mixed race blood and that's all this other garbage. No, all human beings come from Adam and Eve. And so the whole human race was there and God said to the whole human race, there's going to be a man born of woman without the agency of a man and he is going to crush the head of the serpent but he himself will suffer in the process. You had the prediction of a suffering savior right there in the beginning. So with creation, then the fall of mankind, God, it's the first time God gives that promise. Then mankind gets so wicked, you even have angels leaving their proper domain, taking on bodily form, perverting and corrupting God's creation and producing a race, cohabiting with female humans and producing a race of giants, the Nephilim 
uh, before the, the flood and mankind got so wicked and so corrupt that, um, that God flooded the earth and started all over again with just Noah, his wife, his three sons and their three daughters and two of each animal, seven of each if the animals were clean animals and would be eaten and used and sacrifices and all. And so then you had the flood, the global flood, where God floods the earth in Genesis 6, 9 to 11. The next problem that occurred was God said, God, God told mankind, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what does mankind say? Mankind says, you know what, God, I got a better idea. We'll be fruitful and multiply, but we're going to hang out together. We're going to build these places called cities. We're stepping all over each other, okay? And, um, and we're going we're gonna to build these towers and worship the stars and, um, and engage in, in false worship. And that was Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. All mankind spoke the same language. And all mankind uh, gathered together. We have to understand God is opposed to unity outside of Jesus and outside of truth. So the United Nations, forget about it. The United Nations will not give peace. The United Nations doesn't even acknowledge that our human rights come from God. The United Nations claims that our rights come from the government. And what the government gives, the government can take away. And... Um, but God is, God is all for unity, but it's unity in truth and unity in Christ. Okay? And so we love non-believers. We try to lead them to Christ and try to get them to be uh, united in Christ. Uh, but each nation had its own false god or false gods. When man presents a problem, God presents a solution. Now, man might reject that solution, but God presents a solution. So what was God's solution now? I mean, earlier the solution was a global flood. Um, I mean, it could have gotten to the point where every human being was infected with Nephilim blood and the Messiah could never come. It could have, mankind could have gotten so wicked we could have just killed ourselves off. And so even when God has judgment, until the final judgment, that judgment is done with hope of deliverance. And so now the Tower the Tower of Babel, each nation, uh, after the Tower of Babel, God divided mankind into different nations. So what's the next problem? The next problem, each individual nation starts worshiping its own false god or false gods. Some, some Old Testament scholars believe that God placed high-ranking angelic beings to govern over the separate nations but these Beneha Elohim, these sons of God, these angelic beings, instead of representing the true God, they told the people to worship themselves. And so not all of the ancient gods were just product of man's imagination. Behind many, if not most, of the ancient gods is a high-ranking demonic being. In fact, I would argue that Allah, the God of Islam, um, is actually, uh, I don't think he was part of Muhammad's imagination. I think he's a high-ranking fallen angel who lusts for blood. And, um, but whatever the case, 
Each nation was worshiping its own false god or false gods. And it amazes me how practical God is. Because God decided, I am going to get involved in the battle of the gods. I'm going to get a guy and his wife, and his wife's barren, they can't have kids. I'm going to miraculously give this guy named Abram a child through his wife Sarai, and from them I'm going to raise up my chosen nation. See, it was in the beginning Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the time of Abraham, all these angelic beings were claiming to be, all these fallen angels were claiming to be Elohim, claiming to be gods. And so God said, you know, I'm going to pick my own nation from Abraham. I'm going to restore the one true faith that goes all the way back to the garden when God predicted the coming of the suffering Savior. And I'm going to restore that to mankind by starting my own nation. And the world will know that the God of Israel, the Elohim of Israel, he is Yahweh, the eternal one, the I am who I am. He is the creator of all things. So the one true Elohim is Yahweh, the God of Israel. When Israel disobeys Yahweh, God uses the pagan nations to spank them. When uh, Israel is faithful to Yahweh, the pagan nations don't want to even mess with them. When the Jews were marching around Jericho for seven days, you know, Rahab the harlot, she was not a fool. She heard stories of 40 years of the God of Israel, Yahweh, giving victory to the Jewish people, defeating, even defeating the, through the parting of the Red Sea and the ten plagues, defeating Egypt. She knew which side she was on. Um, we should make that choice ourselves inside. So look at Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord, this is right after chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. So what's the problem now? The problem now is each nation, angels who are supposed to represent God, instead call themselves gods and lead people astray to worshiping this false god. So each nation is worshiping its own false god or false gods. So you had the whole concept of a god back then was, was a local god. You know, if that were still going on today, you'd have, you know, you'd have uh, the gods of Gorst and the gods of Silverdale and the gods of Bremerton, okay? And if Bremerton defeated Gorst in battle, the Gorstites, I don't know what you'd call them, um, um, they would have to decide, okay, do we need to just give up on our gods and start worshiping the gods of Bremerton? Or maybe we got to worship the gods of Gorst with more passion. But everybody, it was like the whole concept of God was tied in with a people and a piece of land, local gods. That's why Jonah freaked out people. 
when there was this horrible storm and they cashed lots and it came down, oh, it's Jonah's fault. He must have ticked off your God. Who's your God? He said, the God of Israel who made the land and the sea. And they were terrified. It's like, uh-oh, this guy ticked off a God who's not a local God. He ticked off the real creator of the heavens and the earth. And, um, and so now God is going to tie himself in with a people and a piece of land. Now the Lord had said to Abram, go out of your country. He was beyond the Euphrates River where people worship many gods. Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. How would you like that? God says, hey, I want you to leave your house, Phil Fernandez. Take your wife, leave your house, and uh, I want you to go to a place where I'm, that I'm going to show you. Uh, could you give me a hint now where you want me to go? He's like, no, no, I'll show you. Um, I will make you a great nation. Now, this guy is old. His wife is barren. How are you going to make me a great nation? And I will bless you and make your name great. You realize more than half of the people on the planet Earth either profess to be Christian, Muslim, or Jewish, and in all three groups, Abraham is held in incredibly high esteem. And then even by uh, those who are not part of the three main theistic religions, hold them in high regard. Make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Remind yourself, whenever God blesses you, he blesses you to be a blessing to others. God never blesses you so that you will be blessed. He always blesses you so you'll be a blessing to others. If God's given you the gift of teaching, then you need to teach. It doesn't matter if it's 10,000 people or one person. Okay? If God's given you the gift of service, you serve. And, uh, but he said, you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, he goes on in Genesis 15 and later on that he's going to bless all the families on earth through Abraham, through Abraham's seed. Okay? So when you look at Gen uh, Galatians 3, Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, Verse 16 and verse 18. Galatians 3, verse 16 and verse 18. Now, the big point that Paul is making here in Galatians is that, look, it's children of the promise that are saved, not the children of the law. If you're looking to the law for salvation... You're going to save yourself through your own good works? No. You're going, to, you're going to fall short. Okay? But if you're a child of the promise, trusting in God's promise to someday send the suffering Savior, and he did 2,000 years ago when he sent the Lord Jesus, then you're saved. But Galatians 3, verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, that's plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. 
Okay? So he makes it very clear that God is going to promise to bless all mankind through Abraham's seed, uh, who is the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Verse 18, For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So, in Genesis 3, God promised the suffering Savior. Mankind got so far away from God's promise, rather than trusting God's promise, they began to worship false gods. Okay? And, um, and so, God renews that promise through Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel. And so the promise is renewed. We have to think of Christianity. Yes, Christianity is the one true faith. But then people would say, well, wait a minute. Hinduism is 1,500 years older than Christianity. Judaism is 1,500 to 2,000 years older than Christianity. Um, we got to understand the one true faith goes right back to Genesis 3.15. Once man fell, God said, I got the solution. I'm going to send you a suffering Savior. Okay? Um, and I'm sure Melchizedek helped out keeping the one true faith alive. Noah helped out before the flood and after the flood. Uh, but eventually God's like, okay, now I got to choose myself a nation. Now, we don't have time to look at it, but in Hebrews... Chapter 6, verses 13 to 18. Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 18. This is not in the notes. By the way, I have the notes back there. If you don't have them now and you want to get them later, the Christmas promise. And then we're going to be looking at some of the Old Testament messianic prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. But, uh, and so those handouts are, are back there. Um, but the author of Hebrews makes it very clear in Hebrews that this isn't on your notes, so you might want to write it down. Hebrews 6, 13 to 18. In fact, let me, let me take the time to read it. Hebrews 6, 13 to 18. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And then it goes into that, that he would bless him and multiply uh, his seed. And, uh, and then uh, verses 17 and 18, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise. We are people of the promise, okay? Not people of the law. We know we can't save ourselves, so we trust in God's promise to save. You know, we often think, well, the Old Testament saints are saved by the law, and the New Testament saints and on, we're saved by faith, by God's grace through faith in Jesus. No, the Old Testament saints were not saved by the law. They were saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in God's promise to save alone. So they, they, the Old Testament saints, whether it's Isaiah or Moses or Jeremiah or David, I mean, you, you think David didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus? He said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He talks about walking with Jesus. And uh, the Old Testament saints were saved just like us, by God's grace, something that they didn't deserve, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, 
in God's promise alone. Now we have we got more information. God progressively revealed himself to mankind. So we got more info than they had. We know that the promised seed, we know that the promise, his name is Jesus. And I don't know about you, but there's you put put all your eggs in one basket when, when thousands of disciples left left Jesus. Jesus asked his twelve apostles, You guys want to leave too? And Peter said, Where are we gonna go? We've come to believe you are the Son of God and you have the words of eternal life. And so put all your eggs in the Jesus basket. Uh, I don't care what people do. Uh, what people say, how they threaten us, never give up on Jesus, the, the Christmas promise. And, uh, and so now through the nation of Israel, um, oh, and by the way, let me read verse 18. But God confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. See, God's promise, that's our only hope. And the two immutable things that can't change is God's oath and God's promise. Why? Why not? Because God cannot lie. Okay? There have been there have been people, there are people, there are probably people in this church who took vows to get married to somebody and maybe their spouse didn't stay true to those vows and broke their promises. Let me tell you something. The God of the Bible does not lie. He keeps his promises. Anytime you feel like giving up on God, you just remember he kept his greatest promise. He gave us Jesus. He kept another promise. He gave us the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Pentecost. That Holy Spirit still resides in us, still still empowers us to do God's work. And so he's going to keep his other promise. He's coming back. And... um, but back to the, to the Christmas promise. So through the nation of Israel, the promise is renewed by the God who cannot lie that through Abraham's seed, the Messiah, uh, salvation will come to all mankind. Now, that doesn't mean all mankind gets saved. You can reject God's offer of forgiveness. And so what I want to look at right now is some of the Old Testament Prophecies. There are literally hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And we already looked at Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, the suffering Savior. And we looked at that he'd be a descendant of Abraham. Okay? But Abraham, I'm, I'm telling you, Abraham, not only did he have sons and daughters who were Israelites, you know, later on named after Jacob, okay, his, uh, further down the line, but uh, the fact of the matter is he also had Ishmael, not through Sarah. Later on, through his, after Sarah dies, he marries Keturah, and has, so he was the father of many nations, okay? But to say, well, the Messiah, whoever he is, whoever he's going to be, whoever this promised Savior and Messiah is going to be, he's got to be a descendant of Abraham. 
Okay, that narrows it down to what, tens of millions of people? Okay. Yeah, but he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.10. And you can look these up when you get home and see where they're fulfilled in the New Testament. The tribe of Judah. Okay, now it takes Abraham's descendants through the promised son Isaac and then not through Esau but through his son Jacob and then he has 12 sons and now you slice that. Now it's the tribe of Judah. So we're starting to narrow things down. He'd be a descendant of Jesse, Isaiah 11, verse 1. Uh, and Jesse's son was the father of David. He would be a descendant of David, Jeremiah 23, 5. He's called Yahweh's Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, this king who will reign in righteousness, and, um, and he will be a descendant of a branch of David. Okay? So now we're narrowing things down. And this is confirmed in the New Testament by Jesus' genealogies. He was adopted into the royal line by being uh, the adopted son of Joseph. That's Matthew's genealogy. He got his information from Joseph. But through Mary's genealogy, though he wasn't in the royal line, he was a descendant, biologically a son of David, a descendant of David. Had he been in the royal line, he would have been under Jeconiah's curse. Jeremiah chapter 22. That none of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel. So Jesus was adopted into the royal line, but he was a son of David. Through Mary, biologically, through David's son Nathan, not David's son Solomon. Solomon's line had been cursed when it got to Jeconiah. Okay? And... Um, it's really interesting when you look at the two genealogies there. But he'd be a descendant of David. He, he would be born to a virgin. Isaiah 7.14. Look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. Okay? That he be born of a virgin. Uh, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 tells us that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem. Um, so if you look at Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So there's going to be a ruler in Israel that's going to come out of Bethlehem, yet he comes from eternity. Okay? And um, King Herod, when uh, the wise men came and said, hey, we don't know where this, this Messiah is going to be, but the star took us to the general area in the southern region of Israel, 
uh, in Judea, but we don't know where he's going to be born. King Herod summoned for the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they said, oh yeah, Micah 5.2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Okay? And um, so again, it narrows down. And, and by the way, this is, this is sad, but the angel warned Joseph and Mary, and so they fled Bethlehem while Herod had all the other boys two years old and younger slaughtered. So, I mean, anybody else who could have tried to claim some kind of uh, messianic right, those Bethlehem boys were, were killed. And um, um, born in Bethlehem, his birth would be announced by a star. Uh, star just means a heavenly occurrence in ancient times. It doesn't have to be like literally a star. And uh, by the way, that's Numbers 24, 17. It's a misprint in the notes. I have it down as 24, 7. But it's 24, 17. His birth would be announced by a star. His forerunner is predicted in Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Uh, the specific time of Messiah's coming. Daniel 9, 24 to 27, it predicts a whole lot of crazy stuff right down to the day of its fulfillment, but it predicts that Messiah would, would come, the uh, approximate time he would come, J. Alva McLean was a Bible scholar who believed it predicted right up, it was fulfilled the exact day Jesus rose into Jerusalem on a donkey without words proclaiming it himself to be the Messiah. Fulfilling Zechariah 9 9. But whatever the case, it predicts that Messiah would be executed before the temple would be destroyed. And the destruction of the temple occurred in 70 AD. Okay? And Jesus was crucified either 30 AD or 33 AD or sometime in between. It was predicted in Isaiah 35. 4 to 6, that the Messiah would perform miracles. The deaf would hear. The blind would see. The lame would walk. It was predicted in Psalm 78, verse 2, that he would teach in parables. Parables are true-to-life stories that teach spiritual truth. Okay? Don't confuse it with an allegory. An allegory is a story not true to life that teaches spiritual truth. So when Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches, okay, that's an allegory. That's not true to life. Jesus wasn't literally a vine. We're not literally branches. But when Jesus said the sower went out to sow, that's what farmers do. And fishermen went out to fish. So it was predicted he would teach in parables that the suffering Savior would come and would preach in parables, true-to-life stories that teach spiritual truth. Uh, it was predicted that he'd be rejected by the Jews in Isaiah 53. We're going to look at Isaiah 53 in just a minute. Yet he would receive a wide Gentile following. Uh, by the way, you could just take three prophecies right there. In fact, you could just take two prophecies and show that it's only Jesus. If the Old Testament is God's word, and I don't know about you, but I believe the Old Testament is God's word. 
whoever the Messiah is, God tells us in the Old Testament, he's going to be executed before the temple's destroyed that occurred in 70 AD, and he's going to receive a wide Gentile following. A wide non-Jewish following. Now I ask you, you know, there were hundreds of guys who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah before 70 AD and were executed by the Romans. Okay? But how many of them received a wide Gentile following? If you want to look for evidence that Jesus is the Savior of mankind and the Jewish Messiah, all you got to do is look in the mirror. I mean, if you're Jewish, okay, you're Jewish, but if you're a Gentile, what, what in the world are we Gentiles doing thousands of miles outside of Israel 2,000 years later, and we're gathering to worship some guy who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah who was executed before 70 AD. There, there are houses of worship uh, over 2 billion people who at least profess to believe that Jesus is the Savior of mankind scattered throughout the globe. Okay? So in other words, what I'm saying is when you, when you try to come up with the list of guys who claim to be the Jewish Messiah were executed before 70 AD and received a wide Gentile following, you got a list of one. And I'm telling you, things are going to get tough. You think things are tough now in America? Things are going to get a lot tougher here. And the evil one's going to whisper in your ear, give up on Jesus and just go with this, this new world order and do what they tell you to do. Just give up on Jesus. And you remember... Jesus is on a list of one. There is nobody else. So we got to say, like Peter said, you know, Jesus said, you want to leave me too? He said, where are we going to go? We've come to believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of the living God. And um, so don't give up on Jesus. Don't, don't, please, don't give, I don't care what the world does. Don't give up on Jesus. You know why? Because he never gave up on you. Amen. He left the throne room of God. He had millions of angels worshiping, bowing before him, worshiping him. But he knew the only way for any of us to get to heaven, he had to become one of us. Fulfill the Christmas promise. And then he had to allow his creation. Okay, Romans, Italian guys, probably tough guys. Not tough enough. They were whipping the back of Yahweh become a man. And he took it. And then he spent six hours of horrible pain and suffering until his death on that cross. He didn't give up on me. He didn't give up on you. So don't you ever 
Give up on King Jesus. So he received a wide Gentile following. Zechariah 11, 12 to 13 says he's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, it's also predicted that he would be forsaken by his disciples. They all ran away. Only John, John and Peter, Peter finished in second place, followed him into the courtyard of the high priest. And then Peter denied Jesus three times. John followed him right into the, the palace of the high priest and to his residence and then followed Jesus right to the cross. Um, but for the most part, he was forsaken by his disciples. It was predicted that Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey and receive a king's welcome. Zechariah 9.9. 9. Let me tell you this. If... Um, if you or I got on the back of a donkey and rode into Jerusalem on that day, it would have been no big deal. Okay? But it was predicted in Zechariah 9.9, 450, 500 years before Jesus walked the earth, that Messiah will enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And uh, the people will proclaim, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us now. Of course, they thought it meant save us from the Romans. Okay? They were looking for a military conquering Messiah, which is why Jesus didn't publicly call himself the Messiah. He admitted it to uh, the Samaritan woman. He admitted that Peter got it right when he called him the Messiah. And he acknowledged before the high priest that I am the Messiah. And you'll see me coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So when Jesus finally, quote unquote, came out of the closet and acknowledged, yes, I am the Messiah, he did it without words. He just rode a donkey into Jerusalem. And now, as he's going towards Jerusalem, more and more people are following him from towns because they know there's a death warrant out for him. Um, the Jewish religious leaders want him dead, so they know that there's going to be this big clash. So they're thinking the battle Armageddon. So they're grabbing swords, broomsticks, shovels, and follow him. So by the time the gates open... You got tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, but the gates open and you hear lots of people, maybe a few thousand, following. And it's like, what's all the commotion? Who's that guy on a donkey? And then one Jewish guy looks at the other Jewish guy and he looks back. And, and the guy says, I said, who's that guy on the donkey? And the guy said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. You mean the guy that gives sight to the blind? The deaf hear? The lame walk? And like less than a week ago, or just like, well, pretty, pretty recently, within a few months, he raised his buddy Lazarus from the dead? You mean that guy? This is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Our Messiah is here. And then they just burst out. Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus fulfilled that uh, prophecy uh, as well. Entered Jerusalem on a donkey while receiving a king's welcome. Uh, he was silent before his accusers. Isaiah 53 verse 7. He did speak before his accusers, but never in his defense. He was silent when it came. Do you have any word to defend yourself? Anything to say? He wouldn't utter a word. 
But if he could benefit the guy who was, had him on trial, he might say something. Uh, but he was silent before his accusers. And then he was crucified. Psalm 22, verse 16. You know, King David starts out Psalm 22 by saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, Jesus quoted that from the cross. So every serious Jew would have said, hey, as soon as I get to my synagogue, I'm going to take out the scroll of Psalm 22 because the miracle worker is quoting that from the cross. And if he would turn to that, he would see that King David was talking about, he's like, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So obviously he's on the run. There were plenty of times he was on the run. He was a fugitive. And then David says, they pierced my hands and my feet. That never happened to David. And then David says, they cast lots for my garments. So it's like David is in the spirit and God says, you really love me, David? I'm going to give you a glimpse of what your seed is going to experience on the cross to feel what it's like to be forsaken. To feel what it's like to be abandoned. To feel what it's like to be surrounded by your enemies. They can count all your bones. Your heart seems to be melting within you. And they're going to pierce your hands and your feet and cast lots for your garments. All this was predicted of the Messiah. He'd be crucified in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. Soldiers would cast lots for his garments, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. His bones were not broken. Now keep in mind, nowadays you get a hairline fracture, they call it a break. We live in softer times. This is the computer age, okay? Don't ever think because, oh, I lift weights. I wish I could go, you know, um, back 2,000 years and uh, wrestle Peter. I'm going to tell you right now, he'd whoop you. Okay, he didn't. He didn't sit down behind a desk most of his time. Okay, they, they, those were real men back then. Okay, um, and um, but now where was I going with that? <laughs> I was bones. So a hairline fracture. Okay, so I had hairline fractures on my knuckles from hitting a heavy bag too hard. I've had hair, hairline fractures on my nose. But in ancient times, they would never say, you know, you never had a broken nose, you never had broken knuckles, okay? Ancient times, if, if they call it a break, it's a, it's a clean break, okay? So though Jesus got beaten and battered and probably had fractures all over his body, when it came time to break his ankles so he would stop breathing and take him down from the cross, um, they didn't break his ankles because they saw he was dead already, and they confirm it, they pierced his side, the flow of blood and water came out, and uh, proving he was dead, uh, the Roman soldiers said, you know, I'll give him a lethal blow, so if he's not dead, he'll be dead now. Had they broken his ankles, he would have been disqualified from being the Messiah or the Passover lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, it talks about that uh, God would not accept a Passover lamb uh, with broken bones. And, um, and Psalm 34, verse 20, says that God would not allow his Holy One's bones to be broken. His side would be pierced, Zechariah 12, 10. He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. 
He's going to be associated somehow with the wicked, but also with the rich at his death. Um, and then God would not allow his Holy One's body to see decay, Psalm 16.10. Do you know that in that, in that time, in that part of the world, in southern Israel, um, uh, decay, your body, a corpse does not start to decay until after three days. That's why Lazarus was in the tomb four days, and his sister said, don't, open, don't roll back the stone. He, he's, you know, King James says he stinketh. Okay? And um, um, so if he's going to be, if Messiah is going to be raised, and his body's not going to see decay, he's got to be raised before uh, the fourth day. And, um, and so that he, God said he would not allow his Holy One's body to see decay. King David wrote that. But Peter, when he preached on the Feast of Pentecost, he said, hey, we could visit David's tomb to this day if David wasn't talking about himself. Who's the king of Israel going to talk about if he's not talking about himself? I mean, he doesn't get any higher on the food chain than that unless you're talking about Messiah. I mean, I really think Peter is just daring people. Go check out the tomb, guys. It's empty. He's not, he's not there. And we're witnesses. We saw him alive from the dead. Even his ascension is predicted, Psalm 68, 18. And his position at the Father's right hand, Psalm 110, verse 1. King David said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so I just want to wrap this up here with, with Isaiah 53 and then we'll look at uh, another passage from Galatians but Isaiah 53 if you turn there and I, I think we should actually start Isaiah 53 in Isaiah 52 it sets the context for it in verse 13 now the Messiah is called over and over again my servant God calls him my servant and so, Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold my servant, and this is written 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. Behold my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. So he's going to be lifted up and he's going to be very high. Now Isaiah, like Jesus and John, sometimes they like to use terms that can be interpreted in two ways. Like Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto myself. So it sounds like if I be applauded and exalted by man, I'll draw people to myself. That's not what Jesus said. John said he was talking about his death, his crucifixion. If I be lifted up on a cross, I will draw all men to myself. And so he's saying Messiah, when he comes, he's going to be lifted up and he's going to be very high. And then it says... Just as many were astonished at you, the Jewish people, so his visage or his image was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So Messiah, when he comes, is going to be lifted up. He's going to be very high. And people are going to look at him and turn their heads and say, oh, I can't even look at that. His image has been so, so disfigured, so deformed. So battered and beaten. That's why I think it's talking about Jesus on the cross. So he shall sprinkle. 
many nations. That's a uh, that's a uh, a Jewish temple term for sprinkling the blood on Yom Kippur on the the mercy seat. The high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the day of atonement. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. You don't think there's been kings throughout history that their mouths were shut when their minds thought about the Lord Jesus? Then it says, For what has had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. And then I say, it says, Ah, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He's saying, I'm, I'm predicting this. Most of my people aren't even going to believe it when it happens. For he shall grow up before him as a, a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He's going to come at a time when Israel is poor and in servitude to the Romans. He has no form or comeliness. Uh, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. This is not, don't listen to sermons about an ugly Jesus. Tell you, if I was God and I became a man, I wouldn't, wouldn't become an ugly man. I wouldn't want people rejecting me just because I was ugly. Okay? Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm short. If I was God and I became a man, I wouldn't become a short man either. Okay? Uh, that's a whole other story there. All I was talking about is the guy looked like a blue-collar guy. God became a man, and he wasn't wearing a crown and robes. Didn't have all these bodyguards and soldiers traveling with him. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't just stop and say, oh, look, look, look. There's God incarnate walking by. No. He looked just like one of us. Hard-working, blue-collar guy. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Remember, this is written 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. 700 years before the fulfilled Christmas promise. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. There is talking about his sufferings. Oh, he just, his body was so disfigured by the scourging and the crucifixion. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The Bible says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. He took our shame for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He's going to be battered and beaten, he's going to be scourged. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the substitutionary atonement of Christ, predicted 700 years before it happened, that Jesus would die in our place as our substitute. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He died without having physical offspring. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. He didn't die for himself. He died for our sins. And they made him a grave with the wicked 
A guy gets crucified, you just throw him in a common grave. Sometimes even a guy's mother wouldn't show up for his crucifixion. Shameful way to die. Nailed by the pagan Romans, naked to a tree. And uh, so uh, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. So he dies a criminal's death, and you think he's going to be just thrown into a common grave with criminals. Instead, no. He gets buried in a rich man's tomb. Um, Joseph of Arimathea. Um, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. So he didn't have physical offspring, but he's going to have spiritual offspring he shall see his, his seed, he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I remember when they brought the Dead Sea Scrolls to Seattle's uh, Science Center. And I was there with my eight-year-old grandson. And the people were there. I didn't know if they were Christians or if they were Jewish. Two most likely people to show up for that. So the people who were behind us, I noticed that it said Isaiah 54, and then they had the... the scroll, the, the, the parchment, and then they had the English translation, but it was really Isaiah 53. So I think a, a Christian scholar, Craig Evans, had some say in it, and I think they realized um, if they put Isaiah 53, it would offend a lot of the Jewish scholars, so let's just call it Isaiah 54, but put Isaiah 53 up there. And I asked my eight-year-old grandson, said, look, if he suffers to the point of death, if Messiah suffers to the point of death, how could, if Messiah dies, how could God prolong his days? And my grandson said, by raising him from the dead. And I said, right. And then that group of people moved and another group came up. So I asked the same question again to my grandson. And he's looking at me like, this guy's got dementia already, you know? And, but he said, by raising him from the dead, you know? And so, uh, but... This is not only predicting Jesus' sufferings, but his resurrection. Sufferings and death and resurrection. Verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. You die by crucifixion, people say, man, what a loser. You are the biggest failure in the history of mankind if you were crucified. No. Nope. He's going to see the labor of his soul. He's going to see a bunch of people like us in heaven that don't deserve to be there. He did not die in vain. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many. He declared, there's a doctrine of justification. Justification by faith. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. Anybody gives their top five list, doesn't matter if you're Christians, Muslims, Jews, atheists, Buddhists, Hindus, give your top five list of the five greatest guys who ever lived. Most are going to put Jesus at number one. And some, in the minds of some ignoramuses, he might slip to number two or number three. Somebody doesn't put him on the list, it's like, dude, you're cheating. Okay, you're not playing fair, you're not being honest. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for he, 
and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He even prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not um, what they do. So not only did God fulfill the Christmas promise, he also fulfilled the promise to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. John 14, 15, and 16, he promised he would send the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, 4 to 5, Jesus says, I'm going to baptize you in a few days from now with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, baptize the church with the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised in John 14, 2 and 3, many other passages, he promised he's going to return. So, so God fulfilled the Christmas promise. His son became a man. That promise has been fulfilled. It's like me when that watch showed up at my house. The promise fulfilled. God the Son became a man. He fulfilled that promise. He fulfilled the promise to baptize the church with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to fulfill that other promise. I don't care what President Biden thinks or Kamala Harris or uh, Nancy Pelosi. I could care less. Jesus said he's coming back. He promised he's coming back for us. When you look at the prophecies he already fulfilled, he's going to fulfill those prophecies as well. He's coming back. Don't pity yourself when persecution comes. Pity your persecutors. They're going to have it a lot worse than you. For a lot longer than you. Okay? And, um, and um, so we need to thank God for fulfilling his Christmas promise. Let me close with Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians is all about telling the Galatians to be children of the promise. The Christmas promise. The promise of the suffering Savior. Don't be children of the law. Don't think you can earn your way to heaven. In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, that perfect time, when the whole world knew Greek, and the New Testament, the gospel could be preached to the whole world, where all Rome's led to Rome. Okay? Where the gospel could be spread throughout the world. Okay? Um, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to set us free by paying the price, by dying on the cross for our sins, to re redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That is promise fulfilled. And so this Christmas season, we need to thank God for fulfilling his Christmas promise. John starts his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Everything that has been created has been created by him. And then he says... The word became flesh and dwelt for a while among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Two thousand years have passed and we still celebrate the Christmas promise which was fulfilled when a little baby was born in a manger 
in a little town called Bethlehem. The angels rejoiced. The shepherds rejoiced. Later on, the wise men rejoiced. And if you're a wise person, 2,000 years later, you're still rejoicing. Because the Christmas promise has been fulfilled. And the promise of the coming Holy Spirit has been fulfilled. And now we can rejoice the fulfillment of those promises as we await the fulfillment of the third major promise. The second coming of Jesus Christ to the planet Earth. The return of the Jewish Messiah. Let's close with a word of prayer.